Hello, it's Monday, December the 6th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, we're going to be talking about your iPhone. If it needs repairing, stay tuned. We'll show you how. If you're a drug user in a middle-class home, you may be getting an uncomfortable message on your phone from the police saying, we know who you are. Trophy hunting. Big game trophy hunting from Africa. A big bill is going to be introduced in the Commons to finally criminalise it. Prince Harry versus his father. What Harry did next and why he's upset the Prince of Wales. Yet again. Prince Harry says he's severed all ties with the Saudi billionaire at the centre of the so-called Cash for Honour scandal, which has seen Prince Charles' closest aide, Michael Fawcett, step down. Uh, the Duke of Sussex expressed concerns about Mafus Marai Mubarak bin Mafus six years ago, a year before Prince Charles presented the controversial Saudi billionaire with a CBE. Harry said he had concern over the businessman's motives. Rebecca English is the Daily Mail's royal editor and has written all about this in the paper. Rebecca, um, Prince Harry, is, is he just trying to cause another rift with his dad? I don't know if he's deliberately trying to cause a rift, but it's certainly not going to help relations because it does seem like he's rather thrown him under a bus, doesn't it? Yeah. And why do you think he felt the need to do it? For Harry to, 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 to put this out in the public domain, when he knows his father is under pressure, there's an ongoing investigation, uh, Fawcett has been, Michael Fawcett's effectively been forced out. I mean, I, I'd like to think it's thoughtlessness, which isn't great, but it's the kind of the lesser of the evils. Um, because, of course, when you read uh, his statement, it kind of refers... There's quite a lot of digs at his father, and it refers quite casually to the CBE scandal. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's really verboten in kind of royal circles. You can, by all means, you very. It's a bit like cabinet um, collective responsibility. Yeah. You know, by all means, you you can um, defend your position vigorously, but you don't do it at somebody else's expense, let alone someone that that someone is your father. Um, and, you know, it was a very kind of tabloid phrase and quite a kind of careless phrase, not very, very well thought through, I thought. And and he kept on kind of making a great virtue of his foresight yes. in spotting this man and his motives. But, of course, the flip side of that is that, that his father and Michael Fawcett and all the people involved in, in this business didn't have the foresight to spot it. Uh, and he makes a great point of saying, oh, he, I, he raised concerns at the time, but he doesn't actually say to whom. So did he raise them uh, at Clarence House's father? Did he just raise it internally with his own staff? There's still quite a few questions as well at the end of this. And he, he put this statement, the statement was put out after another newspaper, Rebecca, highlighted Harry's own links with this chap. And therefore, Harry felt he had to show that he had great foresight and, and he'd been suspicious about this man. And in the process, um, he undermined his own father. Exactly. I mean, as, as someone said to me kind of rather pithily yesterday, um, you know, if he was that worried about this man and his motives, uh, why didn't he hand the £60,000 back? that was given to um, two of the charities he involved with. Very, very worthy charities, and there's no criticism of them whatsoever. But if he really felt that concerned about it, why wouldn't he have encouraged to, them to, to give the money back? And he did still meet this man in a pub and yeah. have a handshake with him. And, you know, I don't think he kind of comes out of it entirely covered in glory either. No, uh, and you, as you say, Rebecca, it's not going to make it any easier to fix these increasingly public wounds between his brother and his own father. 
Well, exactly. I mean, I, you know, the, the trouble is it's very difficult, A, for Clarence House to criticise him because they're on a very sticky wicket, let's face it, with this. But also, as I wrote in today's Daily Mail, you know, Charles has always, throughout all of this, tried to be a kind of, you know, Swiss-like neutral territory for his sons and has tried not to react every time he's goaded from across the pond because he, he wants to try and salvage some kind of relationship with Harry. I mean, I can only speak from what I hear from his point of view. I don't know what it's like from, from Harry's. But uh, none of this seems to make that any more likely or any easier, does it? Certainly doesn't. That's Rebecca English, the Daily Mail's royal editor, who's written a cracking piece about this in the paper today. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free, in full, along with all our other podcasts and video series. Don't forget to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So it was two years ago that the government pledged it would bring an end to the importing of hunting trophies and finally, it seems, a bill is to be introduced to the Commons. It will be read on Friday and if and when it becomes law, it will criminalise the importing of trophies and require existing ones to be registered. Will Travers is the executive president and co-founder of Born Free and he joins me now. Um, well, uh, how important is this and in how widespread has it been the importing of these animals, some of which um, are under threat, of course? Well, yes, indeed. Uh, you're quite right. Some of the species that are trophy hunted are, in fact, endangered species. Um, and so I don't think we can say that um, a, a ban on the import of, uh, of wildlife trophies into the UK is, is like the biggest factor and the biggest threat facing wildlife. It surely isn't. Um, because there are many other anthropogenic influences on wildlife, so changing habitats, uh, climate change indeed, and many other factors uh, are probably larger. But in a sense, it's one that sets a, a kind of vision, a benchmark for this government, or in fact any government, and it reflects what the British people want, which is a sort of end to this practice of killing some of the world's most iconic species for fun, which is that that's basically what it is. Um, and, and so it, by bringing in a ban, whenever that actually happens, it will meet the manifesto pledge, it will meet what was said in terms of the Queen's speech, and it will reflect the views of the majority of people in the United Kingdom. Uh, Michael Ashcroft, Lord Ashcroft, who's um, campaigned on this issue very strongly, he says there are still 333 African farms which have lions which are hunted in an area from which they can't escape. He says other animals are slaughtered and their parts sold for trophies or Chinese medicines. Uh, that is that is true. I mean, the, those are the canned hunting facilities in South Africa pretty much exclusively. Uh, and the, in, the good news, I, I guess it's good news, although it's a massive challenge, is that the uh, minister responsible in South Africa, Minister Creasy, has declared that the practice of canned hunting and all associated practices, so that would involve also the trade in their body parts to the Far East, will uh, come to an end. Now, we don't know when, we don't know quite how. It's a really complex situation because those 300-plus facilities contain between 10 and perhaps 12,000 individual animals. When, when we started campaigning on this issue uh, 20 years ago um, at Born Free, we, we were talking of maybe two dozen facilities. So it's got out completely out of control. Now they're trying to wrestle it back um, but it will have significant consequences, and we must be very careful to think through what those consequences are and to act as humanely as possible under very, very difficult circumstances. What are those consequences? 
Uh, well, you know, we, we've seen the footage. I've seen the footage many times. There was a, an amazing film called Blood Lions uh, that came out some years ago, which basically blew the lid on this. There's another film out very recently uh, called uh, Lions, Bones and Bullets. Um, many of the animals are inbred and sick. They have literally degenerative conditions, so mm. hip dysplasia, uh, nervous system uh, attrition, all sorts of different problems. And I, I'm guessing, and I'm not a vet, but were a vet to look at those animals, um, he or she would probably decide that the kindest thing to do, well, just as you would if it was your mm. dog under the same circumstances, is to put those animals down. That won't resolve the problem because there will still be many animals left. Some might go to um, sanctuaries, existing sanctuaries. Some of the existing canned hunting facilities may be converted into sanctuaries, which the public can, can visit. No animals will be killed or handled at these facilities, but they, there will be a sort of rescue operation going on. But this is why we need to, um, and we've written and asked for this, this is why we all need to get into the same tent with the government, explore what all the options are, see what the individual facilities are like, because some will be far worse than others, look at each animal as an individual, and then, and then come up with a, a humane plan. Can I ask you as well, we know that America's already banned the imports of these trophies. Um, do you think, has that had, as, well, as far as you know, Will, a, a material effect on the number of animals being hunted? And I also wondered how seriously African countries are, are taking this, because uh, presumably it's a form of tourism that earns them money. Well, firstly, only you know, a certain number of African countries practice um, trophy hunting. Right. And, and we've looked at this and the impact on those countries in terms of uh, revenue and jobs and the impact, the, the so-called benefit to local communities, while not non-existent, is modest. And as, as a responsible nation, if we are going to move towards introducing legislation which may bring about the end ultimately of these practices which is our sovereign right to do then we then we we need to also take some responsibility for the outcome of our decision and to support and to fund and to look for opportunities to transition people who may have made their livelihoods uh, out of trophy hunting uh, into other livelihoods. Uh, as far as America is concerned, actually that would be news to me because I think that although the U.S. has banned the import of certain trophies right. from certain countries, yeah. by, that is by no means. But America is the biggest trophy hunting destination in the world. I thought that was the case, so I'm glad you've uh, corrected us on that. Um, that's Will Travers. He's the executive president and co-founder of Born Free that has been campaigning hard on this. So it'll be a big day on Friday for you, Will. I, well, I, I'd, I'd wait to see the details, as they say, but in yeah. principle, we, we could not uh, be happier. Glad to hear it. That's Will Travers. Thanks for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So middle class drug users could soon receive text messages from the police.
as the government announces a new 10-year plan to try to deal with the UK's drug problem. But will such measures put off drug users? Dr Robert Lefevre is an addiction specialist and author of The Streetwise Guide to Addiction. He joins me now. So, Dr Lefevre, this is what the police say they're going to do. They're going to get hold of the phones of dealers, find various contact details for people they presume they're supplying, and going to send them a text saying, Oi, we know who you are. Is that going to do the trick? Well, it, it will, in the sense that um, tackling middle-class people where it hurts them uh, in potentially losing their passports and losing their driving license and having travel bans, that will hurt. So it, it could um, wise them up. However, on the other side, as soon as all the, the, the people know that this is happening, will come the forgeries. My wife had her passport forged last week, and somebody sort of um, with a, a new photograph oh and, uh, with the same name um, pretended to be her. And so she's had to report this to the, the police and to the, the passport office. And so people are already doing this, yeah. you know, creating forgeries, and I'm afraid that's what's going to happen even more. Yeah, because, of course, some of the other measures are seizing passports, driving licences and putting repeat offenders on curfews. What do you think they should... What's the most important thing they should be doing, uh, Dr Lefevre, if they're going to stop this vicious cycle from the, from the, well, de- from the dealer to, to the middle-class table? Well, I think one of the things that uh, Boris Johnson has said that he wants to do is to break up county lines drug groups. Now, a county line is the method of transporting things across uh, boundaries. And the way they do this is to use children and vulnerable people. And they, they're threatened with violence. And, you know, this causes a lot of weapon-related uh, crime. So breaking up the county line drug groups will be a major um, task. But that's what needs to happen. Yeah, and of course the, uh, the, the they're making the point the government that it's that this this the county lines uh, it's not a victimless crime because um, uh, it's getting all sorts of people uh, involved in the actually smuggling the drugs, but also presumably getting more and more people addicted. Yes, I, I'm afraid that's true, but we need to start at the top, and it's very interesting to see that. Um, sniffer dogs are now going to be introduced into the parliamentary estate. Amazing, isn't Into it? Parliament. Yeah. Well, they already have sniffer dogs um, for explosives. That's yeah. very sensible. But now, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker, says there's growing evidence of cocaine use in Parliament. Well, you know, if the sniffer dogs are, are set to sniff out MPs and other people within the parliamentary yeah. estate... That really is something. It's and yeah. I mean, my feeling. Go on, my what feeling were you about say? this. Yeah. Uh, my feeling about this is that it's very sensible for Sir Lindsay Hoyle to take that attitude, and I would recommend him to talk closely with Lord Mancroft, who I know personally. Lord Mancroft acknowledges his previous addiction. Yeah. And he's an excellent speaker, and excellent man altogether in trying to tackle addiction from the inside 
Baroness Nietzsche talks about legalizing cannabis and talks about legalizing cannabis and talks about legalizing cannabis. Mm. I, I don't think she understands what this is all about, whereas Benjamin Mancroft absolutely does. Um, cannabis is an addictive drug, mm. and um, it, it needs to be tackled uh, by decriminalizing it rather than legalizing it. Yeah. So when it's decriminalized, it's still a, it's still you know against the law, but you don't go to prison for it. Um, you have the prospect of going to rehab or I guess the other forms of treatment. I think that is sensible. Um, but if we look at the overall figures. 300,000 opiate or crack cocaine users in England last year, 1 million people using cocaine in the past year, a record number of deaths, an 80% increase in deaths that are drug-related since 2012. These are immense figures. So Boris Johnson has really got to do something. He certainly has. That's Dr Robert Lefevre, who's an addiction specialist and the author of The Streetwise Guide to Addiction. Of course, um, the sniffer dogs are looking for cocaine in Parliament. It won't be necessarily the MPs that are using it. There are an estimated 10,000 pass holders who work in the Palace of Westminster. I have a pass. I'm there regularly. But let me tell you, it's not me. It's that point in the programme. Uh, Matt Gatwood's here. Of course, he's the Deputy Sports Editor of the Daily Mail. And you're so excited, and I'm so not. The Ashes start tomorrow, down under. They do. They start tomorrow night for us. Uh, right. Obviously, a Wednesday start in Australia. So, yeah, you can tune in from about mm. midnight uh, tomorrow night for the action. And, yes, it's exciting. Right. It's been hard to get excited about this Ashes Tour because normally you have warm-up games. You have, you know, you yeah. follow the action down under. Some of it might even be on TV where you see some of these warm-up games. You look at who's in form, who's bowling well, who's batting well, how the Aussies are going, etc., etc. But because of the, uh, the COVID restrictions, etc., uh, there's been it's been a much more low-key build-up. So there's been mm. very little play possible for... Bad. Bad weather too. Apparently. Bad weather as well, yeah. of course, as you know. So I know you're all across yeah. this. Yeah. Um, and there's bad weather forecast for for the first test. Although we think you know there should be enough play for uh, for um, there to be a result. But it's here. You know, it's here. We're only a day mm-hmm. away. And it is time to get excited. There are some things pointing in England's favour because basically all the predictions have been doom and gloom. Mm. The fact that we lost Joffre Archer, we lost Ollie Stone, to both of those players to injury. Uh, we thought we'd lost Ben Stokes, obviously, but he's now he's come there. back. Yeah. Um, so the fact that Stokes has come back, the fact that there's a bit of weather around, as you say, which makes mm. it feel like it may be a bit more English uh, yeah. conditions. Uh, the fact that the Aussies have lost their captain uh, on the eve of the Ashes, obviously, with the, the whole... The texting, sexting, whatever exactly. you call it. And they've had to appoint a new captain. I actually think that makes them a better team because the new wicketkeeper they've brought in, I think, is just as good. And, and by all accounts, this Pat Cummings, who's taken over the captaincy, uh, is a very uh, steady pair of hands. So... Um, it, it, we remember, but however, having said that, he is captaining an Ashes series for the first time, so that is always a big, mm. uh, a, a um, lot of pressure on his shoulders. So there's a few things tilting it in England's favour. However, don't make me do a prediction. No, I won't. Not this stage. Not, not this, this stage. stage. But uh, yes, so there's a few things. There's a few rays of sunshine, a few reasons to be hopeful as it starts. But the best thing is, it's almost here, and it'll be good to watch. Very good. Now, Lewis Hamilton, he really is taking it right down to the wire. This is. Cliffhanger stuff, isn't it? Amazing, amazing season, and just what F1's been crying out for for uh, for a few years now. As Hamilton's been so dominant, uh, but he yesterday in this crazy uh, race uh, with Verstappen, where Verstappen slammed on his brakes.
brakes and Hamilton went into the back of him and Verstappen then said, yeah, well, I was only slamming on my brakes because I was trying to let you pass because I've been told to and Hamilton didn't know that and then he accused him of being crazy and was talking about how, well, if we both crash, obviously if they both crash off, that's better for Verstappen because he stays in front, etc., mm. etc. Et so it's brilliant. In the end, Hamilton did win and he now they now go into the final race next it's Sunday. Sa- it was the Saudi Arabian one, wasn't it? It was Saudi Arabian yeah. Grand Prix yesterday and they've got the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix on Sunday to finish mm. and they go into that race absolutely on the same amount of points so um, incredible that they're neck and neck now obviously therefore whoever wins is it possible that they could it could be a dead heat if they they both cross the line at the same time well that would be i mean yes that so that's one possibility however outlandish that sounds but the more realistic proposition is that they both crash into each other and are both unable to finish the race and neither of them get any points now that's obviously possible especially if one of the two drivers decides to veer into the other one which is what was happening at the weekend now if they don't finish the winner would be Verstappen on count back of how many races he's won this season so it's only in one person's interest to knock the other one off the track next weekend I thought it was motor racing not um, uh, stock car racing well uh, absolutely it is but Verstappen is this driver who uh, who is what's been so interesting about watching him is he takes risks yeah. he pulls off some of these and that's why Hamilton's calling him crazy mm. is because he does take risks and he does some of these outlandish things he doesn't he doesn't always just take the safest line right. so uh, where, he would where, say where's he's, he from is he Holland so he's Dutch yeah Dutch, and right. he would say he's um you know, he's just being yeah. uh, he's being um, attacking and aggressive in his driving mm. Hamilton would say he's being crazy and dangerous and that's what makes it so beautiful <laughs> Yeah, considering it's the world's most boring sport, it's um, quite exciting. (laughs) So that's cricket you've just criticised. And now we're fine. Should we move on to football? Do you want me to start on golf? (laughs) Really boring golf. Uh, Football. uh, So Manchester United got their new manager and he started off with a win. He did. So Crystal Palace though, wasn't it? Well, this is it. There's been a lot of, I mean, you know, we obviously praised him because it was a good result. They won 1-0 against Crystal Palace. But as you say, it's 1-0 against Crystal Palace. They had to wait till the 70-odd minutes till they managed Mm. to break Crystal Palace down, scored a good goal through their midfielder, their much maligned midfielder Fred. And they, but they did, you know, at the start of the game, first half hour, yep. you could tell he'd had an impact on them. They pushed up, they pressed higher, they ran more, they closed the opposition down. The key will be, it's okay doing it on week one, isn't it? We all mm. like to show off to mm. our new boss on week one. Mm. It's week four, week five. Will yeah. they still running around then? Then we'll see the true... Uh, make up of this squad and whether they've got it in them so yeah you know give him a tick for day one but let's see what happens down the line very interesting that's matt um, gatwood deputy sports editor of the daily mail thanks for joining us so rather than buy an expensive new iphone can you simply open up the back and repair it yourself apple's changed its stance last year allowing users to do just that and britain has recently brought in a right to repair law Harry Wallop, consumer journalist extraordinaire, attempted to repair a phone himself, but it didn't go quite to plan. And he joins me now. Harry, I wouldn't have even tried to fix my iPhone if it went wrong. I would take it to a shop and say, can you fix it and hope for the best. But you had a go. I did have a go, but I've now learned that I shouldn't have had a go and I should have just gone to the shop. Uh, it's, It's unbelievably complicated and fiddly and also just hard the very first stage you have to do is take the screen off the front. And I thought you just unscrewed some screws. I remember the days you got a five pence piece out of your pocket and you flipped open the back and that was it. Yeah. But you, you unscrew some screws now and you just can't make it budge because it's glued together. So I had to get a hairdryer out. And even then it didn't really work. Uh, so, yeah, very, very, very difficult. And that's just the first stage. 
What was the, what was what was the worst part? Well, once I'd actually got the screen off, yeah, uh, I thought, oh, fantastic! I just slot out the battery because it was. I was trying to replace the battery, and that's the problem yeah. with modern phones. Yeah, the phone's fine, works absolutely fine, but the battery dies, and uh, they charge a fortune to replace the battery. Why don't I do it myself? Go mm. online, you get you get a new battery, and you get the kit, uh, the tools to do it. But once you you've got to get the battery out, and it's it, it's quite literally hardwired in. So you have to sort of not only take out some tiny fiddly screws and undo some wires, you have to you have to prise the battery out and it is glued in. It is basically super glued in. And it has these special tabs that you pull that release the glue. Uh, it's very hard to explain without photos. You pull the tabs and it does say in the instructions, you know, be very careful. Do not, you know, you're in trouble if this goes wrong. <laughs> and sure enough, it went wrong and they snapped. So it was trapped. The glue, the tabs were trapped under the, the battery and it said get some guitar wire to sort of almost cheese grate off the battery. And I thought, oh, I'm not, I can't do that. I haven't got any guitar wire. So mm. I got a knife out. Right. I tried to prise the battery and then the battery started to bend. I thought, <laughs> oh, who knew? Who knew, that a, a, who knew that a phone battery bent? How fascinating. And then it started to smell bit like oh. pear drops. Oh, God. I thought, I thought, wow, how amazing. How amazing. The inside of a phone smells of acetone. Is it acetone? Yeah. Uh, and then the smoke started. Oh, dear. <laughs> Is that when you realised perhaps this wasn't such a good idea? Well, yeah, I actually then, of course, I suddenly remembered, you know, those stories from a few years ago of laptops exploding. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I had, I later discovered it, there was a big warning before I'd started saying, do not puncture the battery, risk of explosion. Uh -oh. I mean, I, dro I, I dropped the phone and I sort of took a very sharp step back. And luckily the smoke then did stop billowing. And I then was a bit more careful. But yeah, I'd punched the back of the battery and it, it was starting to smoke and it got very hot. Um, I did eventually, I eventually, it took over two hours. I got Two hours, oh my God. Years. You never get that back though, do you, Harry? That's the trouble. Those no, two hours it, lost forever. Yeah, and it, you know, and how much was I really saving? I mean, I was saving the planet an awful lot, but yeah. in terms of saving money, not that much. In terms of taking it to a professional repair shop, but but the and, and Apple are particularly bad. The experts say other brands of phones are a lot easier to mend, and as of next year, uh, Apple, because they're going to supply the kits rather than relying on third parties supposedly the tools will be better quality um but it's not great it's not great because you know we we all love reading those stories of people who have fridges that lasted since the second world war yes. with a guy yeah that's iron, right that's right the iron yes I mean, yeah that's absolutely right that's right so why can't a phone I you know, know. Why can't, i don't mind i don't mind replacing the battery and getting software upgrades every few years no problem yeah, yeah. but why can't it last those you know the first generation mobile phones they lasted for years you i wish them and they were I yeah. wish I still had that old Nokia of mine from all those years ago, which was the best mobile phone I ever had. Well, you get the ultimate status symbol. Philip Green. Yeah. yeah, Philip Green, before um, he became tarnished. Yeah. The point of honour that he didn't have a smartphone. He used to use an old Nokia. Uh, and he would text with it with his big fat thumbs. Uh, and if you want to get through to him, you needed to have his Nokia mobile phone number. But that was, a, you know, I'm a billionaire. I don't need a smartphone. I've got secretaries for that. Exactly. If you want to get in touch with me, I've got a good phone. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, pri and, and, and private yachts and things too. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> exactly. Harry, what a great story. So the motto is, next time you need to replace your battery, you're going to the repair shop. 
Yeah, and, and also the motto is manufacturers, if they're going to be serious about helping the planet, they need to make their accessories and gadgets easy to repair. There's no need to glue a phone battery in. There's another yeah. way. Uh, they just need to put their thinking hat on and then we could do it. But at the moment, no, take it into a professional and let them do it for you. That was Harry Wallop, consumer journalist, uh, admitting he probably would have been better to have gone to the repair shop with his iPhone. That's where I'd go. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. <laughs>